In English, the word love has many different meanings. We use this word to cover a lot of different emotions and feelings. One kind of love in the Pali is called tanha pema, and it means love or affection that's associated with desire and attachment. And this is a fairly familiar kind of love. We know this one, I think, quite well. And we hear about it a lot through a lot of popular music. The love that's extolled I want you, I need you, I love you. And it all gets jumbled up together. There are two outstanding characteristics of Tanha Pema, two qualities of this kind of love which are very impactful for us in our lives. The first of them is that it is always for a limited object. We may have this kind of love for one person, or maybe for several people in succession. Seem to do that quite often, too. (laughs) Some people even manage to have this kind of love for two or three people at the same time. But there's no one that I know of who actually has desire for all beings everywhere. (laughs) Maybe in California. (laughs) But it really points to the limitation, to a limitation of this particular kind of feeling. But it's always limited in extent. The second characteristic of this kind of feeling, the love we have when it's mixed with attachment or mixed with desire, and this is quite interesting to observe in our lives, of how easily it can be transformed into ill will or anger. Why is this? How does this happen? When the love we feel is combined with attachment, that means that it's dependent upon certain kinds of conditions. It's dependent upon situation being a certain way, on people behaving a certain way. And then when the conditions change, this feeling of love changes. Often when the conditions change, then we have feelings of ill will or resentment or anger or hatred. And just think in, in, your, in your own personal life, when somebody who is close to you, and somebody who we're in a close relationship with, changes their attitude towards us, or changes the way they're behaving towards us, does some kind of actions that we don't like, that we don't appreciate, What happens to us? How do we feel then? Do we have the kind of love that actually allows for that? Or is it the kind of love that is dependent on the conditions staying the same? This love with attachment or love with desire is very changeable precisely because it is dependent on changing conditions. 
something else that happens when this is the strong feeling in our hearts, this feeling of tanha pema, affection or love with clinging, with grasping. And that is when we have this feeling and we see someone who is suffering, often we begin to feel sorrow and grief at the suffering. And this sorrow or grief is a different feeling than compassion. It's not the same feeling at all. Now, there are so many people who are suffering and dying in the world. And yet, for the most part, we really feel sorrow primarily for those who are closest to us. And so it's interesting to see, it's interesting to look and investigate in ourselves. Where does that sorrow come from? Where is it born from? Is it born from a feeling of metta? Or is it born from some feeling associated with attachment? These discriminations are very subtle. They're very delicate because they take us beyond the conventional way of understanding things. It's said that at the time of the Buddha's death, there were many, many people, women and men, surrounding him at that time. And it said that everybody was grieving a lot and sorrowing a lot, except for those who were fully enlightened, except for those who were free of attachment, free of clinging. And for me, this is an instructive example, not to create a model of how we should be, and sometimes people hear it this way. They say, we create this model and then we feel self-judgment or self-blame because there's still desire in the mind or there's still attachment in the mind. That's not the purpose at all. All of us, at different times, are filled with love and desire and joy and sorrow and grief and compassion. We all have these feelings. The point of the careful looking is to really get clarity about what's going on. So we're not living in a cloud of confusion, so that we see clearly what actually is present, what leads to happiness, what leads to suffering. This is the great interest of the practice, that we're willing, that we're honest enough to look in ourselves, to look in our own experience with a great power of discriminating wisdom, with a great power of discernment. Krishnamurti had a wonderful phrase. He said, it's the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. And so it's not something we have to strive for, and it's not a model that we create, and we try to fit ourselves into the model. But rather, if we have this passion for freedom, for understanding, that we look very carefully, that we don't settle for the conventional way of understanding things. And this is, this is the great power of our practice. There's another kind of love. There's this love of tanha pema, or love with attachment. There's another kind which is called dhamma raga, which literally translates into dharma lust. <laughs> what this means is that there's a kind of desire or love which we can have for meditative states. 
sometimes it happens that tremendous happiness comes in the practice. It's probably coming tomorrow. (laughs) But actually, it does happen, you know, each in our own time. But as we explore and as we develop, both in the metta and in the vipassana, there are times when we experience a tremendous, tremendous joy and peace and calm in ways that we have never experienced in our lives before. And there's this strong tendency in the mind then to start practicing for these states. They're so pleasant, they're so agreeable, they're so joyous for us that we become attached to them. So this is another kind of love, of meditative states, that's also joined with attachment. Sometimes it comes from exceedingly pleasant experiences. Sometimes there are very unusual, just really unusual things which happen, or very profound insights. We really understand things, and then we try recreating them. And that recreation is simply another kind of holding on. The first period of time I spent in Burma at the monastery practicing Vipassana, I went through a very long, difficult period. It was almost two months of a lot of pain in the body. And I was really, I was really working. I was working with the pain. And it was, it was difficult, you know, day after day, week after week, to be feeling these painful sensations in the body. I, I had a lot of uh, faith and a lot of commitment, so I kept on, kept on working with it. Finally, after about two months, there was this wonderful opening, and everything became like this great, vast space. It's like the body disappeared, and I was just floating in this great spaciousness of mind. And it was such a relief and such a joy. And I went into Upandita, and I reported this. He kind of nodded. It lasted the second day. I went in, and I reported, and he said, okay. And the third day I reported, he said, haven't you enjoyed this long enough? (laughs) I thought three days was not much, given two months of pain. (laughs) But he's very good at unhooking the mind, you know, from holding on. Now, it's a little different in metta practice. There's a slightly different attitude towards pleasant feeling. Actually, in metta practice, at those times when it becomes more pleasant, there's actually an encouragement to enjoy it. To enjoy it, to be with it, to let it spread, to really have this feeling of joy spread through the body, spread through the heart, through the mind. But what's important even in the metta practice and in the enjoyment of the pleasant feelings, of the loving feelings, is to be holding it in the context of freedom. That these pleasant feelings are not an end in themselves. They come with the feeling of metta as it, as it gets stronger. But we have to see that even attachment to that can be an obscuration of freedom. And that's really what the spiritual path is about. It's about freedom, liberating the mind. There's a third kind of love. There's the love or affection with attachment. There's the love of meditative states which can be with attachment. 
And then there's a feeling of love, which is metta, which we've been talking about a great deal this week. It's this very smooth and gentle and soft quality of the heart, very simple, which simply wishes well to all beings. And a lot of our practice really is recognizing its basic simplicity, that we don't have to struggle to create any great emotion or fireworks of metta. Just the simplicity of wishing well. So every time we repeat a phrase, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, allowing the simplicity of it to radiate outwards. What characterizes the purity of this feeling of metta, of metta-love, is that it makes no distinction between beings. And this is quite extraordinary. To develop a feeling within us, a feeling of benevolence, a feeling of goodwill, that is not limited to those who are close to us, It's not limited to a selection process of people we like and people we don't like. Something very extraordinary about a feeling which can actually embrace all beings. This feeling of metta does not transform easily into ill will does not change easily into resentment or anger because it's not dependent on people being a certain way. This is what's so inspiring about people like the Dalai Lama or Deepama or others who you may know who have this quality of love which they have for all beings without discrimination There's a presence, there's this great field of loving feeling which comes from them. Being with Deepama was just wonderful. She basically spent her life blessing people. (laughs) No matter who. People, animals, she was leaving to go back to India, she was blessing the plane, (laughs) you know, be happy. (laughs) Which probably was a good idea. It's just because she had it so well developed and it was so all-inclusive. What gives this feeling of metta its great, great power is that nothing is outside of its sphere. No one is outside of its sphere. An 18th century Japanese poet named Isa, who expressed this beautifully in a haiku, said, in the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. In the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. So can we make our hearts, can we make this quality of metta like the shade of the cherry blossoms, which no one is a stranger, no one is outside of it. Now the problem is that I think we can all appreciate this quality, but if you have been working on your enemies this afternoon, you probably realize that it's not so easy. I mean, maybe in a few extraordinary beings, they seem to have brought it to perfection, but we know from our own lives that 
the metta is something less than totally universal. So the question which interests me is, what is the wisdom? What is the wisdom component which allows us to generate a more all-inclusive metta? It's not so helpful simply to appreciate it as a quality and hope that someday we get there. More interesting is, okay, what is the kind of understanding that allows us to become more inclusive right now in the middle of our everyday lives with all the difficulties and all the difficult people that we meet? Because there is a wisdom which allows us to develop this. was talked about very clearly and in a very extreme situation in an article that I read published in the Harvard Medical Journal a couple of summers ago and it was about the chief physician to the Dalai Lama his name was Tenzin Chodrak. He was imprisoned by the Chinese in 1959 and spent 21 years in prison. And in this article in the, in the medical journal, goes into a lot of quite horrible detail about the level of pain and suffering and torture that he went through for 17 of those 21 years. It said that every single day of those 17 years, his life was endangered. And tremendous, tremendous brutality. And yet somehow, he had a wisdom which allowed him not only to survive, but actually to come out of that situation with what they call a triumphant heart. And he talks about a few very basic principles of this wisdom, which allowed for an all-encompassing metta. It's not that we are all going to be like him, obviously. He's a very extraordinary person. But the wisdom he talks about, the principles he talks about, are universal. And we can really apply them in our lives. And this is what makes possible the strengthening, the all-pervasiveness of loving feeling. The first principle he mentioned, first kind of understanding or wisdom, is that he understood his situation in a larger context than simply what was happening. He talked about the basic teaching of how one's enemy teaches one's pa- teaches one patience. This is what he said. He felt that even in the most dreadful human condition, some benefit was being gained, some human greatness was being accomplished. And just imagine the intensity of the suffering the intensity of the pain, and to have a mind, to have an element of wisdom which was larger than the pain, larger than the suffering, which, which could see the possibility of transformation of consciousness within that situation, to feel that a real accomplishment of human greatness was possible even in the midst of that 
And so the question for us in our lives, in infinitely less difficult situations, but still for us what might be quite difficult, or different situations of suffering, can we bring this kind of wisdom, can we bring this sense of seeing something larger, a larger context, where we can step out of our story a little bit, step out of the drama, even when it's very intense, say, okay, what can be learned here? What is the transformation of mind, the transformation of heart that's possible in this situation? We can do this, each one of us, at those times when things are difficult, rather than being caught or locked in simply to the circumstances. This was the first principle of wisdom which he applied. The second one was that he understood that his enemy, in this case the people who were torturing him, were human like himself. And that they had within themselves the seed of Buddhahood. To remember this in circumstances of that level of intensity is very extraordinary. He understood that his enemy, his tormentor, was a person like himself, who was also subject to adverse conditions, who would have to suffer the karmic consequences, the karmic results of all of these acts of cruelty. And so even in that situation, had the wisdom not to lose the understanding of oneness or commonality of the human condition, that we are all subject to the law of karma. And what's so beautiful about this example for him in his response was he wasn't taking the law of karma as a refuge of revenge. Oh yeah, (laughs) you'll get his someday. (laughs) But really, in a much more profound way, his understanding of the law of karma became a vehicle for compassion. Seeing the oneness of humanity. And it's just so extraordinary that that (laughs) our minds can, can have this level of understanding in those kinds of circumstances. We're blessed not to be enduring those. Can we bring the same understanding in the various circumstances of our lives? So that when we're dealing with difficult people, or people who may be harming us in one way or another, can we bring this wisdom to the situation? Seeing that just like us, they're human beings. They have the seed of Buddhahood, just like us subject to the law of karma, just like us, and have this be a vehicle for compassion. The third principle of wisdom is very simple, but I think actually quite difficult to embody. That is, he said that he remembered to be humble and forgot about pride. In our culture, for the most part, humility is not seen as a great virtue. And I think it's not seen as a great virtue because often There's a pretense of humility. There's a stance of humility, which really can be quite egotistical. 
But true humility is the sense of letting go of the sense of self. It's the absence of anyone to be proud. A real understanding of emptiness. And so in difficult situations where we might feel that our metta can't extend to encompass certain people or certain situations, I think it's helpful to look to see whether we're holding on in some way to an element of pride. It could come in the form of self-righteousness, could come in the form of self-importance. Any way in which we're holding on to the strong sense of I doesn't allow for the metta to embrace all. Because that pride is a separation. So it's just to look in the both obvious and very subtle ways pride comes in in those situations where we feel closed off. So this seeing the larger context, the possibility of real human greatness, the accomplishment of that, when we see the larger context, there's the seeing the commonality of the human condition, of the law of karma, of the compassion that comes from that, There's the letting go of pride. And the last principle of wisdom which he mentioned was the understanding that hatred and vengeance, these feelings towards the enemy, are unskillful feelings because they simply breed more hatred and vengeance. It becomes a cycle of hatred. And so when we understand this, it becomes an impetus, it becomes a motive for unhooking ourselves, for not feeding them, for not getting lost in that cycle. These principles of wisdom are something that we can reflect on in our lives. We can practice them in our lives. And we start in small ways. We don't have to look to the most difficult situation and the hardest place to practice, just in very small ways. At those times when we're going along in our lives and we feel in some way that the metta is closed off, that the wellspring of metta is capped, that we feel separate, we feel annoyed, we feel angry, we feel irritated. To begin to make our lives our practice in this way, to really bring in quite a profound transformative wisdom This then becomes a living of the Dharma, not simply a practicing it. We actually are living it. It helps us to step out of the deep patterns of reaction we have, to be so locked in to the dramas of what's going on, the dramas of our relationships, the dramas of interaction, the drama of our own life unfolding, We can step out of that a little bit. Out of the stepping out, we allow this feeling of metta to grow strong, to become all-inclusive or more inclusive. As this happens, a particular kind of transformation takes place. 
as we develop this feeling of goodwill towards more and more beings, including more and more beings, then when we see somebody who is suffering, when we come close to someone who's suffering, there's a natural movement of the heart to want to alleviate that suffering. And this is the feeling of compassion. When we're grounded in the feeling of goodwill towards beings, and we see someone who's suffering, there's this natural sense, how can I help alleviate the suffering? Ryokan, who I mentioned the other night, he wrote one short poem which expresses this feeling of great compassion. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. It's a wonderful, a wonderful sentiment of gathering up, of holding, of caring for. What opens us to this feeling of compassion, what allows this feeling of compassion to grow in us is a deepening understanding and a closeness to suffering. That's the unique quality of compassion. When we do metta, metta is for all beings, whether they're suffering or not suffering. (coughs) Compassion is particularly directed to those who are suffering. When we look in our own lives and in the world, we see suffering all around us. I mean, any newspaper or news magazine is basically a catalog of suffering. Most recently, just all those horrendous images of the war. It's all over you. Sure, you're very familiar. One of the images which particularly stuck in my mind, I'm sure you're familiar with it, was of those, uh, I forget the name of them, those birds with the long necks, and they're totally covered in the oil slick. And just as a, as one image of all the tremendous suffering that goes on, and some of it seems so, so senseless. As we allow ourselves to open to it, to, to feel it, the natural response, if there's a ground of metta, is one of compassion. Now, there's an interesting distinction here. When we see suffering as an individual problem, whether our own suffering or somebody else's, then very often we feel pity. When we see suffering as a universal experience, then we feel compassion. Because when we see it as an individual problem, there's a sense of separation. When we understand suffering as being a universal experience, then there's a feeling of oneness. And this is what characterizes compassion as opposed to pity. There's a lot of suffering in the world. Why isn't there more compassion? What we see when we look carefully both at our own experience and the experience in the world is that often we're not open to the suffering. The suffering is there, but it can be too much to bear, or we don't like to see it or feel it, and so we close off, or we become defended. And we see this in a lot of different ways, right, in our own experience. What is our relationship to pain in the body? Those of you who have some experience in meditation practice know all the thousand ways the mind tries to avoid the feeling of pain. It's difficult 
really too open to it. You know, we avoid it, we look away, we bargain with it. There's a whole host of strategies. We close off to different feelings or emotions. And we see in our lives there are certain emotions and different ones for different of us that are not okay to feel. Maybe for some it's anger or grief or sorrow or unworthiness or boredom, whatever. Certain feelings which we're not willing to be with. And so we close ourselves off and don't allow ourselves to feel the suffering of it. And so we close ourselves off to compassion. There are certain people and situations that we close ourselves off to. People we just don't like, we don't let in. We lose the sight, we lose sight of the oneness. There was one story from my early days in practice in Bodh Gaya in India, of my attempt to keep something out. I was practicing in this very little hut. There was no door on it. It was just a piece of canvas. And I was sitting on my bed practicing. This cat comes in and sits down on my lap. And here I'm busy getting enlightened, and this cat is <laughs> this cat is disturbing me. So I kind of toss it out. Two seconds later, <laughs> it's back in, it's on my lap. I toss it out, back in, toss it out. This went on for 20 minutes, a half an hour. I'm getting more and more irritated. Finally, I don't know how long it took, I finally realized there's no way I'm going to keep this cat out. There was nothing I could do to block it. Came back in, sat down on my lap. I said, OK, I surrender. I'll get enlightened with the cat on my lap. <laughs> it was amazing. Fifteen seconds later, the cat got up and walked out the door. <laughs> it was such a lesson to me in both the tendency, at least of my mind, and I think it's fairly common, in different situations where we, where we just put up a barrier. We don't want to let something in that in some way is not pleasing to us. And how it's possible, if we see it happening, if we're attentive enough, if we're aware enough, and we see ourselves doing that, at some point we realize there's another way. We can actually let this in. We can feel it, that it's OK. The practice of compassion is the practice of letting everything in. Letting in all parts of ourselves, letting in all parts of other people, letting in all parts of the world. It's out of this letting in that compassion flows. And it's not easy. We all find our own edges, our own boundaries. That's exactly the interesting place to work. Okay, we find ourselves at a boundary. Can we be aware of that? Okay, let me open, let me see. There's a 10th century woman poet of Japan. Her name was Izumi. One of the things I like about Japanese poetry so much, a lot of it is... Um, that it expresses so succinctly, very often, something so profound. She wrote, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Just imagine this woman sitting there at dawn, looking up at the sky, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. This is our task, no part left out. 
Can we practice letting in all the parts? This is the wisdom that allows compassion to flower. But it's also not to create another model that, yes, we understand this and we should necessarily be able to allow it all in at once. Maybe for some rare individual that can happen. Sometimes the suffering's too much. We can't let it in. It's, it's overpowering us. And so really out of compassion for ourselves, we have to see that. We have to recognize this is not a time to be opening. This is a time to be retreating. This may be a time to be closing off a little bit, to actually gather the strength to be able to open. And so it's not a question of models of how we should be. It's a question of understanding. And out of the understanding, we see what is the appropriate action. What do we need to do? We can also develop compassion through a meditation practice in the same way that we've been doing the metta. There's a particular formula for the compassion meditation. Steve mentioned it briefly last night. It's taking the image or the sense of someone who is in a lot of suffering and simply repeating one phrase, may you be free of suffering. And it was from doing this practice for some time that I came to appreciate how much is contained in a single phrase. Because one would think repeating one phrase over and over and over again, the mind would get bored or disinterested or quickly wring it out. But it was amazing. May you be free of suffering. It contains the whole world. We say it over and over with attention, with care. And the flavor, the aroma of compassion begins to come forth from it. Slowly we cultivate this feeling of compassion in our lives through the meditation practice. Begin to slowly extend this feeling of compassion to all beings. There is not just one way to feel it. No, we are each conditioned in very different ways. So some people may be very empathetic and really feel the suffering of others in themselves. Other people may not have this particular quality of empathy, but have the feeling of compassion through a great feeling of care and interest in the suffering of others. And so again, we should not create some model in our minds of how we should feel compassion. It's just to be open to the suffering that exists in ourselves and in others, and let the response come in a natural way. As it grows, there's a growing momentum or growing force within us to actually express compassionate action in the world. It's not simply a question of opening to the suffering and feeling it in ourselves and feeling the compassion. As it becomes strong, it flowers in action. Flowers in the action of alleviating suffering. How do we do this? What are the ways of doing this? There are many ways. Again, there's no one model for it, because we have different interests, and we have different skills, and we have different abilities. Some people might take a very direct intervention to alleviate the physical or mental suffering of others. Some people may be interested 
in alleviating the suffering of samsara, this endless cycle and round of rebirths. Some may do it with words, some may do it with action, some may do it with music. Some may do it with sitting solitary in a cave, radiating feelings of metta and compassion. Some may be doing it through political or social action. There's so many ways and there's no hierarchy. We can be practicing compassion simply by becoming a little kinder in our relationships with one another. Dalai Lama said at one time, my true religion is kindness. <coughs> Just imagine if everyone in the world, not everyone in the world, everyone in this room, <laughs> made it a practice to be a little bit kinder. Tremendous expression of metta and compassion in that. I'd like to close by just reading a, a short teaching of the Dalai Lama. We are visitors on this planet We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. So simple. We come to a deepening understanding of peace within ourselves, of love, compassion within ourselves, and we try to share it with others. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning in life. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.